0: All right. Please turn in with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. Uh, this morning we're looking at verses four through six. You can find it on page 977 in the Bibles that are provided in the chairs. We look at the Bible a lot. So you're going to be helped by having that in front of you. If you happen to be here and you don't have a Bible, well, we have a Bible that we want to give you. So right over at the welcome table, we have Bible. Bible's there available for you. Please take one. We want you to have access to the Word of God. We want you to read it. We want to be able to talk with you about it. So please, if you don't own a Bible, take a Bible. <clears throat> well, last week we started looking at the implications that our new life in Christ has on our lives together as Christians. Right? We're not just saved and our position has changed before God. There's something really... Different happens in the way that we relate to each other, that when God saves us by his grace through faith, we become citizens of God's kingdom. We are now God's people. We are sons and daughters of his family, and we are being built together into this dwelling place for God. Though we were once cut off, we were removed, we were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world, now all of that has changed because God has made us alive. He has united us together. We are now members of Christ's body. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. And so in light of this reconciliation that we now have with God and with each other through our union with Christ, Paul now calls us to live in light of that union. Basically, what he's telling us from here on out is, listen, be who you really are in Jesus. Right? That's the challenge that he's been giving us. And so last week, when we looked at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul pleads us to live lives that reflect the reality of our new nature in Christ, to be who we are He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So what he's telling us here is that we are now in Christ as a new creation and that has huge implications huge ramifications on how we live together as God's new humanity we are to live in that new identity in Christ adorning and reflecting the nature and character of the gospel and that changes the way that we live i mean we're, we want to honor the god's effective and saving call with our very lives The gospel transforms us. It changes us. Even the way we think about ourselves and the way that we think about others so that now we approach one another in humility and love. And we take great pains. We go to great efforts to preserve the unity that we now have in Christ Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that unites us together. It's His work. He's doing it. And this unity is established and secured through the peace that we have been given by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's telling us not only do we have this new identity because of our faith in Jesus, but that all of those who truly belong to Christ are really, truly united to each other right now by the work of the Spirit. We have the unity that comes from the Spirit in the bond of peace that Jesus himself has provided. And therefore, we are to eagerly maintain, to preserve the unity that we have received from the Spirit. Okay? So you are a new creation, we are new a new humanity, we are united together. Now this brings a lot of questions to mind typically. At least it does for me. When I think about what it means to be united in Christ, how do we think about preserving unity in the church that we have through the Holy Spirit. Does that not kind of trigger your interest at all? I mean, mean, think about what we deal with today in terms of division and denominationalism, disunity, sin in the church, this culture of radical individualism that we live in. All of that has bearing on the way that we think about unity. And so how should we think about the church? Should we... Should we think about the church just in terms of this big picture, like that we're all part of the universal church, the one body of Christ? How does that make us think about the local church and how we're to live together just in a smaller body? What does this mean for uniting with other churches or other denominations? Is it ever appropriate for us to divide or disassociate with others, either on an individual scale or on a much larger level? Well, you know, in particular this, how do we do that here at Redeemer Church? How do we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? This should be very, very important to us. Now, I realize that trying to answer all of those questions sufficiently would take a very long time. I'm not going to be able to do that, let alone all the questions that you might have about those questions and answers. But our text this morning, Ephesians 4, 4 4-6, I believe gets at all of them. It touches on all of them. And through the help of the Holy Spirit, this passage leads us to rightly thinking about unity in the church. And what we learn from this passage is that we are one and called to live as one because everything that we are built upon is one. I'll say that again. We are one. And we are called to live as one because everything, absolutely everything that we are built upon is one. And so for context, I want to read in chapter 4, starting in verse 1 through verse 6. So please read along with me. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that comes in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, let me just say right up front that this passage leads us away from two extreme errors that we typically would kind of be prone to fall into, two extreme errors that we need to avoid in thinking about unity in the church. And the first one is that this is not a call to impose uniformity on the church for the sake of unity. Right? Not uniformity. Our unity is established upon the core truth of the gospel, not on personalities, not on personal preferences, not on traditions, not on races, not on cultures, not on any other demographic data, not the way we dress, not our musical style, not our political positions, none of that. Okay? And to add to the gospel in any way, to try to build Our unity around anything in addition to the Gospel actually contradicts the unity of the Gospel. So we're not saying uniformity for the sake of unity. The other extreme that we have to avoid is unity at all costs. Right? We do not seek unity with those who do not share a belief in the essentials of the Christian faith. And so if our attempts at unity in any way contradicts the truth of God, then we have lost the gospel, and our unity is not in the gospel. And so I have to lay those two opposing errors right out front because they are pervasive, and they affect the way we think about and understand this text. Not uniformity, and not unity at all costs. Okay? We're somewhere in the middle. Instead, this passage says that we are one and called to live as one. That's established in verses 1 through 3, because everything that we are built upon, according to verses 4 through 6, is one. Now, another piece of information we have to keep in mind in the background as we think about this text is that the, the contextual issue that Paul is dealing with is separation of Jew and Gentile, okay? that they were not one, they were not living as one. The issue that he's dealing with is racism and ethnocentrism, right? That I'm putting my type of people, my culture, ahead of what the gospel does in us, and so we separate and divide based upon those grounds. And he's saying, no, that's not the case. The gospel has removed all that, and we are to be one. And that word one, I, I mean, you've seen in the verses, is used seven times in these three verses. It rings out over and over and over again. But these seven ones, as you see, are core truths. These are statements of faith that are necessary if we are to be one. But these gospel essentials form the foundation. They form the reason, the basis of our unity in the church. Now, I said those words, so I'm hoping that the foundations course, you know, the hermeneutics, you guys are picking up on that. Reason, basis, foundation, the ground, okay? Let that whet your appetite to go and see what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) Now, Paul may have been quoting from an early Christian creed here, but he's certainly calling us to unity that's based upon the united work of the Godhead. The Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. I I hope that you saw that. There's one Spirit, one Lord, the Son, Jesus Christ, and one Father. And just as the Trinity is perfectly united as three in one, so the church is united and is to pursue unity that reflects and is consistent with the very nature of the Trinity. This is why we pursue unity. To be the many as one. And so that's the way I'm going to frame the rest of our time together. I want to look at these seven ones in terms of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we can better grasp who God is, what He has done, and how and why our unity is to reflect those core truths. So first, in verse 4, we see that the unity in the church comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? Point number one, through the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 3... Paul calls us to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're, we're set up right away. This unity that we have comes from the Spirit. This is his work. Now, why? Why are we called to eagerly maintain it? Verse 4: Because we are one body. Right? Paul uses a lot of illustrations to describe the church of Jesus Christ. Right? Many throughout, I mean, just even Ephesians alone, I think, carries all of them. We are god's people the citizenship of god's kingdom he calls her god's family and the bride of christ he's referred to her as the temple of the lord but his favorite illustration by far is that of a human body one body with many members we see this over and over again in paul's letters i mean big big passages romans 12 first corinthians 12 and here in ephesians chapter 4 each member of the body is dependent upon the others for life, for health, and to be able to function together towards maturity in Christ. We're not individuals. It's not just me and Jesus. Your salvation is not dependent upon the fact that I made a, I prayed a sinner's prayer, I made a right decision for Jesus, and now it's just between me and Jesus. But we are individual members of one body. The body of Christ. You see, God doesn't just save us from our sin. He actually saves us into Christ's body, the church, a living, mutually dependent organism that is led by, controlled by, and operated by its head, Jesus Christ. This text says that it is one body. Do you see that? One body. Every time Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ, he speaks as the one body the body, the church. And so in that sense, Paul is speaking of the universal church or what some people sometimes call the invisible church. And what he means by that is all of God's people. And when I say all of God's people, I mean all of God's people from all time and from everywhere. Everyone who is truly Repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ, whether they they existed thousands of years ago or whether they haven't even existed yet, whether they are right here in in this place, right here and now or across the globe, all of God's people from all time, that is the one universal church, the one body of Christ. People from every tongue, every tribe and every nation so whether you are here or in West Bengal, whether we're talking about Paul and the people that he wrote to in Ephesus, all of those people who are truly trusting in Christ are God's people, the one body of Christ. That's the way he's using that word. And yet we can never forget that Paul always writes to local manifestations of that one body. Do you notice that In the beginning of Ephesians, he doesn't write to the saints who are from everywhere in all time. He writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing to an individual church or individual churches in or around the area of uh, of Ephesus. And, And every one of his letters are like that. They're addressing local, specific congregations. And when he talks about the function of this one body what this body is to do, how we are to live as this one body, those functions are only possible within local congregations. It cannot actually be lived out at, at the macro level. It has to happen at a much smaller level. And so the one church can only truly function by many local churches. For example, First Corinthians 12, he clearly establishes it's one body. He talks it up. It's one body. But yet in chapter 12, verse 26, Paul says that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, is that possible at a global, universal, atemporal level? Can we actually do that? Now, I I, I can... I can hear stories of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe about how they're being persecuted. And I can grieve for them and I can pray for them, but I can't really suffer with them in the way that this passage actually calls me to. I can't rejoice in their blessings in the way that this calls me to, let alone if we think about it in the matter of time. Can you and I really suffer and rejoice with Paul? I mean, really, actually suffer with him? Or what about somebody who is yet to be a believer, who doesn't even exist yet? Can we rejoice and suffer with them? Well, the answer is no. Right? Obviously, we're called as one body to suffer together and to rejoice together, but it can't happen at a global, universal level. And that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here. right? This idea of separating between the universal church and the local church is is, a false dichotomy. That you can't actually have one without the other. We function, we eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace at a local level. We rejoice with one another at a local level. We suffer with one another at a local level. Okay? So it's not universal church or the local church. It's a both and. You can't actually have one without the other. You can't really understand one without the other, right? So if you've ever been in those contexts, and I'm and I'm convinced if you've been a believer for a while, you've heard, had people talk about only the local church or only the universal church. But it's a false dichotomy. It's one and the same. We have both. They go together. Even in the fact that we're connected on a global scale like never before in the history of the church, I mean, I can, I can get on Skype and I can have a face-to-face conversation with one of my friends in India. It's amazing. But even though I'm connected on that scale, right? I can't really live out the gospel with them in that way. I can do so now more than ever before, but still it's removed. This is why the, there are local churches, and that's why Paul is writing to them individually, not as a whole. But at the same time, It would be wrong for us to think only about the local church and never stop and think about unity in the church on a larger scale. That is equally wrong. Paul is reminding us here that we can't only be concerned about our tiny little church here in Champaign-Urbana. That God is doing a work that is far bigger. And why is that? Well, because all of all true followers of Christ are part of Christ's one body. And they are part of this one body because of the second core truth that he states there. They share in one Holy Spirit. It's the one Holy Spirit who connects us all. We are one body because we all have one Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who perfectly, in perfect unity applies the work of the Son according to the plan of the Father. And Ephesians is filled with the work of the Spirit in and for the church. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, that's Jesus, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of God's glory. So the Holy Spirit seals us. He is the sign and guarantee that we belong to Jesus and that we have received and will fully receive an eternal inheritance from God. It's through the work of the Spirit that all believers from all time and everywhere are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places according to chapter 1 verse 3. It's the Holy Spirit who implements God's work in giving us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Chapter 1, verse 17. It's through the Holy Spirit that we all now have access to the Father. 2.18 In Ephesians 2.22 it's the Holy Spirit that is building us together into the church, into a dwelling place for God. That He's doing that even right now as we speak. He is building us currently into this dwelling place for God. He's the one who made God's revelation known to the holy apostles and prophets, according to 3, verse 5. It is through the Holy Spirit that God grants us to be strengthened with power in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, according to three sixteen. And it is the Holy Spirit, according to chapter 4, verse 3, that unites us together in the bond of peace. You see, everything about who we are in Christ and all that God has done for us in Christ comes from the Spirit and is dependent upon Him. We are not individuals. We are Christ's one body because the Spirit is one and He has made us one. There are not many Holy Spirits. There are not different Holy Spirits. It's not like you have a Holy Spirit and I have a Holy Spirit and you have a Holy Spirit and them, them over there, they've got a different Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit that unites us all. And so when you look out across this room and you think just about unity, I mean, do you see one another and do you think, wait, wait, you have the Holy Spirit and I have the Holy Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit. I have the... Do you see that connection in that way? It would be helpful Because here's the thing, the same Holy Spirit is at work in me, who is at work in you, who is at work in every single believer, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what language they speak, or no matter what color their skin is. It doesn't matter. The same Holy Spirit is at work in us all. And so it doesn't matter whether they wear animal skins or whether they wear skinny jeans. The same Holy Spirit is at work in them all. But not only is there one body and one spirit, we even share in one hope. Paul says, look, we need to take great pains to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace because we are one body and one spirit. But we even share in one hope that belongs to our calling. Now, hope is not just an idea. It's not some wishful thinking like I hope I win the lottery. That's not what he's talking about here. It's a longing that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says that apart from Christ, we were separated from God and from his people. We were strangers from all of his promises of rescue, that we were having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we were. We were hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. We were doomed to face God's judgment and eternal condemnation for our sin because we're sinners and God is holy. That's who we all were. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, God has opened our eyes to see who God is and who we are in light of Him. We see now His holiness and our own sinfulness. It's the Holy Spirit that works in our hearts to reveal the very perfect character of God and my own unworthiness of being before Him and the rightness of His judgment against my rebellion. It shows just how desperate my need of Jesus really is. That I cannot possibly save myself. It's the Holy Spirit that works in my heart that teaches me to accept the message of the Gospel. That though God created me, and God sustains me, I have used the very breath that He has given me to reject Him. To try to live my life without Him. As if this is my world and I'm God. It is the Holy Spirit that teaches me who Jesus is, that He is both fully man and fully God, that He came and lived a perfect life, a life of perfect obedience, one that you and I, we can never dream of living, and that He gave up that life and laid it down as a ransom to pay for the penalty of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that opens my eyes to believe that Jesus rose from the dead to prove that He was the Son of God, that He did indeed satisfy God's wrath against sin, that death is not the end, that there is more, that all will be raised, all will stand before Him in judgment, both the living and the dead, and those who, by the work of the Holy Spirit, have turned away from their sin and believed in the Lord Jesus will be saved for all eternity. Their relationship with God will be reconciled and they will be with Him forever. That is the hope that we've been given through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about, this hope of our calling. And that's the direction that we're all heading. That is the hope that every single believer shares. And so in thinking about unity on a larger scale, how, how do I eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace on a bigger scale, on a global scale? When you encounter a brother or sister in Christ, whether that be someone that lives down the street from you and maybe is a part of a different congregation, or maybe they live across the globe in a in a grass hut, this is how we ought to think about this, Right? you start asking some questions. Are they members of Christ's one body? Is the same Spirit who's at work in me alive and living and working in them? Do they share in the same eternal hope of the Gospel that I share in? Well, if that's the case, then be ready and eager to preserve the unity that we already have with them that comes from the Holy Spirit. And if that's the way that we're to think about our brothers and sisters, right, on a global scale in other congregations, then that should certainly be the focus in this church. Friends, we are one body. We have the same Holy Spirit working in each of us. And so when I look at you, I, I need to be able to see the Holy Spirit's working in your life. I need to remind myself of the fact that you too have the Holy Spirit. And we're heading in the same direction. We have the same hope. We have the same calling. Right? And so the next time there's disagreement, and you're tempted towards disunity, you want to just kind of bolt, you want to bail, you want to avoid, you don't want to deal with whatever's around you, remind yourself of this fact, that we have the same Holy Spirit is at work in each of us. The same one. And so we pursue unity first through the work of the Holy Spirit. Second, we do so according to the leadership of the Son. In verse 5, Paul continues to focus our pursuit of unity with three statements regarding the rule and direction of the third person of the Trinity, the Son. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now when he says one Lord... He's not referring to God the Father here, but God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we know that? Well, every single time in the book of Ephesians, where Paul says, Lord, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time. right? Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can look at chapter 1, verse 17. You can look at chapter 3, verse 11. You can look at chapter 5, verse 20. Or chapter 6, verse 23. Every time, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the Lord? Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to take time here to argue for the deity of Christ other than to say this about this word Lord. In the Old Testament, every time the word Lord is used, who is it in reference to? God, right? Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. When Isaiah is prophesying of this coming servant who would prepare the way of the Lord, who is he talking about? God, Yahweh, Yahweh's Lord, right? But if you read Matthew or Mark or Luke as they quote Isaiah 40 verse 3, talking about how John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord, who are they they referring to? Jesus. Referring to Jesus. So they're taking this term, Lord, that is used in the Old Testament throughout only of Yahweh, the one true and living God. And they are applying it across the board throughout the New Testament to Jesus Christ. That is an argument for his deity. He is the Son of, of God, the second person of the Trinity. Now here Paul says, one Lord. He doesn't say one Savior. Now this is huge, okay? We've got to think about this. You see, it's one thing for me to believe that Jesus saved me from my sin. It's another thing for me to say that Jesus is Lord, that He is the Lord of my life, that He is Lord and nothing else. Because if Jesus is Lord, that means that I am subject to Him. Right? It's not that Jesus is my Savior And that's it. He by rights is my ruler and my king because he is Lord. So I don't get to dictate what Jesus means to me. Or this group of people over here does not get to dictate what Jesus means to them. Jesus is Lord. That means that we are subject in all things to his rightful rule. He's Lord. This is huge when we think about unity. In chapter 1, Verses 20-23, through 23, Paul told us that Jesus was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, which includes both yours and mine, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God put all things under His feet, which includes you and me, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In chapter 2, verse 10, Paul tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus. If he made us, then he owns us. You get that, right? If you make it, you own it. Right? But not only that, he purchased us with his own blood. So what does that mean? You're twice owned. Right? Once through creation, the second through redemption. So the Son is God. The Son is Creator. The Son is Savior. The Son is Head of the Church. The Son is Lord. Our unity is dependent upon our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are subject to Him. I do not get to rule. Following Christ is not a matter of personal preferences. It is not dictated by cultural appetites. Jesus is Lord, and we are to maintain unity under Him. But to the one Lord, Paul adds one faith. And when it says one faith, he's not referring to our subjective faith, like... He's not talking about one's personal belief and response to the offer of salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the one objective faith, the body of doctrine that is necessary for us to rightly believe and follow Jesus. It's what we must believe and what we must follow in order to be a Christian. It is the body of truth, the faith. And this is what Jude calls us to fight for in Jude 3 and 4. In Jude 3 and 4, he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So here are people that call themselves Christians that are inside the church, but are denying the one faith in the way that they're living, perverting the grace of God into sensuality, basically saying, hey, we can live however we want to live. We can do whatever we want to do. And in so doing, they're denying the Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They're denying the Lordship of Christ. This one faith is the pattern of sound words that Paul taught Timothy, according to 2 Timothy 1.13. And it was that one faith, that pattern of sound words, which Paul commended to Timothy to teach faithful men who would then in turn teach others also. This one faith is Paul's gospel according to Galatians 1. And though I think that more than likely Paul is referring that all that he has talked about so far here in Ephesians 1 through 3, at a minimum, this one faith is the word of truth that we must hear and the gospel of our salvation that we must believe in order to be saved. This is why here at Redeemer we have a statement of faith. Right? A guiding body of biblical doctrine that we believe and contend for so that we might pursue unity together as a church. Now this may surprise you. You may, may not have thought about this before. A lot of people kind of think, you know, doctrine divides. Well, I'm just not very theologically minded, so I'm just going to take what you say. This seems like it comes from the Word of God. I'm going to say, A-OK, just kind of move on with life. But what Paul is actually saying here is that doctrine is essential for our unity. That we can't actually have unity without it. We need right doctrine. We need this one faith. And so honestly, whoever came up with that slogan that doctrine divides clearly has not understood this passage. To be unified, we must have one Lord and one faith. But not only are we unified according to Christ's leadership as Lord through this one faith, but we are incorporated into this union with Christ through one baptism. Now, Paul is not speaking of some second baptism in the Spirit. I just kind of want to dismiss that right away. I'm not even going to deal with it. But the command of Jesus and subsequently his apostles, that when anyone hears and responds to the gospel, when they believe in the truth of Jesus Christ and they've received the Holy Spirit, they are called to respond by repenting or turning away from their sin to trust and follow Christ. And as a, an outward display and public profession of this inward work of the Spirit that results in their faith, believers are to be baptized, to be immersed or submerged in water as a symbol of their identification with Christ in His death burial, and resurrection, for the remission of their sin and new life that they now have together with His body, the church. In baptism, we profess that we belong to Christ, and we join with His church to identify ourselves with Him. Now, if you have any more questions about baptism, feel free to talk to me. After the service, or better yet, tonight we have a baptism service. It'd be really great for you to go and just see and learn more about what baptism is and why it's important. Now, now that's that's dealing with baptism generally. Now I'm gonna put on my Baptist hat for a minute. Okay? We're Baptists here at Redeemer Church. Okay. Which so that means that we hold to believers' baptism by immersion. Now we understand that when Paul uses the word baptism, he means water baptism. That's what he means because that's what he practiced, okay? That's, That's what we understand both biblically and historically, that Paul in the early church practiced believer's baptism by immersion. And so things like infant baptism or baptism with a different mode, maybe pouring or sprinkling, did not appear historically until the... Second century at the earliest, but was not commonplace until the fourth century. And so if it's commonplace, when when Paul says baptism, he's thinking of baptism for believers by immersion. That's commonplace. He doesn't have to define what he means for us. It's just commonplace because everybody does it and everybody did it. In that day, you were baptized and added into the church and you were baptized in this way. That's just the way it was. So he doesn't have to define it. And so we can't read later historical developments back into this word and trying to say no he means this we don't have liberty to do that right just like if we're reading a letter from alexander graham bell that he wrote about his invention in 1876 of the telephone we cannot read images of steve jobs holding an iphone back into his letter that is not what he meant that is a later historical development. And so it's historically inaccurate for us to be thinking that Graham Bell is talking about an iPhone. You get that, right? Is that helpful? And so when Paul says baptism, he means believer's baptism by immersion. We can't separate Paul's practice from the meaning of the word. Okay? I'm taking my hat off now. So, so, does that mean that we should never unite with people who practice different forms of baptism? No. That's not what I mean. Though when Paul says baptism, he means water baptism, we simply uh, we, we can't ignore that. His emphasis is not primarily on the mode, but on baptism being the symbol of our belonging to and submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's that symbol of our identification with his body, that we belong to him, that he is our Lord. It's a public display of our active submission and obedience to the one Lord and one faith. But that's what Paul is emphasizing. That's his primary purpose for saying that, though he he did mean water baptism. And so the point of this verse is that there is one Lord Jesus Christ who is to be obeyed and adored. One believing experience in this one faith, this objective body of essential doctrine that brings us into saving union with Christ. And there is one outward visible ceremony by which believers confess their faith and are openly incorporated into the fellowship of God's people, the church. That's what he means. So, What does that mean for us in considering how we are to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, it requires a little bit more discernment now, doesn't it? we should see that. When thinking about unity with other professing Christians or other professing churches, we first have to ask, are they believing, loving, and faithfully obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in Him alone? And that him alone is pretty important there. If they're adding to it, say Joseph Smith, then there's a problem. Right? Are they doing that? Then you add to not just doctrinally what is their position, but are they refusing in any way to submit to Christ, whether doctrinally or maybe practically or ethically? Because if they're they're basically living in unrepentant sin and denying Christ's lordship in any way, then our unity with them is automatically hindered. Not because of what we do or what we choose or not our opinion, but that's the reality of what's happening in light of this text. Do you see that? Right? It automatically hinders. And, and depending upon the severity of their refusal to obey Christ, we might actually have no unity that comes from the Spirit with them at all. And so we have to use wisdom and knowing how to think about their submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. The second consideration is whether or not they are holding to this one faith. If they are rejecting essential truths of the gospel, then we cannot unite with them. For example, if they deny the Trinity, then according to this passage, they are not Christian. And the greater our doctrinal disagreements become, the less united we can be. The closer our doctrinal alignment becomes, the more united we are. And so in thinking about how does this play out in terms of my life, right, we could work together with people from various beliefs, from various backgrounds to, say, raise money for a public school or to clean graffiti off of walls. There's nothing explicitly Christian about that, is there? But the closer you get to the one faith, the more judgment needs to be made, the more we need to think about what it means and who we can partner with, right? So, for example, right, we can partner with other evangelical churches to raise money to support Christian orphanages in Sudan. Or we can go to conferences with our our Reformed Pado baptist brothers and sisters and we can pray with them and we can even have Brian Chapel come here and teach us about preaching, but we couldn't be part of the same church because we disagree upon some major fundamental issues with regards to the Christian faith. Now, I dearly love Brian Chappell. I am grateful for that man. He is my brother in the universal sense of the church. But we cannot be a part of the same church. He couldn't be a member here at Redeemer, and I couldn't be a member there at Grace Presbyterian. Because we differ in terms of doctrinal convictions. And those convictions are good. (laughs) They're important. That kind of leads us to thinking about denominations. Why do denominations exist? Now, denominations today, there are good things about them, and there are bad things about them. Anytime we start making our denomination a primary issue and identifying ourselves with our denomination over and above every other denomination, that's a huge problem, right? When that becomes ultimate over being identified with Christ, our one Lord in one faith, then that's a problem. But yet, if we understand why denominations exist, why they were invented It was to actually give people the liberty of conscience so that they wouldn't be subject to go against conscience and be a part of a state church. It actually allowed people the freedom to be faithful to their convictions of Scripture so that they could align in a way that's more appropriate and not not have to stuff certain beliefs like believer's baptism, not stuff certain beliefs like church order or things that are significant in how we live our lives together. So denominations were actually created for good purposes, even though it's run far too far. It doesn't mean you abandon it altogether. Okay? Denominations actually allow us to be united at a larger scale than we might otherwise be. And so where we, the church, cannot be united with, uh, according to this passage, one is Pentecostals, for example, because they deny the Trinity... We can voluntarily associate with Southern Baptist churches or even other denominations to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace on a larger, more universal scale, provided, provided we share in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And the third consideration, when we when we think about Unity and how we, we pursue unity together, we have to ask the question, do they belong to Christ? Are they truly submitted to Christ? Have they made that known publicly? Right? Do they want people to know that they belong to Christ, that He is Lord? And the more alignment there would be with regard to baptism, the more united that we can be. For example, here at Redeemer, we can only truly and fully have fellowship and be united together as a local church in membership with other baptized believers. Right? That's part of what it means to be a member here at Redeemer, that you must be baptized as a believer by immersion. And if we can't agree on that, then there's a level at which our, our relationship, though we are brothers and sisters in Christ, are, are hindered. They're separate. I'm not accountable for you. Praise the Lord <laughs> if you're not a part of my church. That's scary, uh, right? But yet there's a different level of responsibility to one another. And that's a responsibility, folks, that we ought to long for, that we should want, that that's what God calls us to, right? And so, but yet we're, we're separate in that. And so in thinking about this, Have you been baptized? Have you publicly declared that you belong to the Lord Jesus and that you believe in the one Christian faith and have identified yourself with His church? If not, you must know that you are rejecting the clear command of Christ. This is not my idea. This is not my opinion. This is the Word of God. You might call Him Lord and say that you believe in the one faith, but if you are unwilling to be baptized, then your life is displaying that you don't. You are seeking to be Lord and attempting to define the one faith for yourself. But if He is Lord and you believe in Him, then respond to Him in baptism. So Christian unity comes through the work of the Spirit, according to the leadership of the Son, and third, under the sovereign care of the Father. And I'm just going to be brief here, or attempt to be brief. I know that that we've been going on for a while, so I want to be um, careful. But in verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now this... God, he's not many gods, he is one God. He is one, one God in three persons, a blessed trinity. So the notions of polytheism, this idea of holding to many gods, or pluralism, that all religions, whether you believe in one God or many gods, lead to some notion of God, those are dismissed by this passage right away. There is one God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. So God's sovereignty over all is clear from this passage, and it's been clear from Ephesians as we think about it as a whole. Chapter 1, verse 10, God will sum up all things in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Chapter 1, verse 22, God has subjected all things to Christ. Chapter 3, verse 9, God has created all things. Chapter 3, verse 15, God is Father, is the Father who names all families, whether earthly or heavenly. He is all-powerful and works through all. He is everywhere present who works in all. and see, So He is the sovereign God over all who knows all things, and in His power, He can do all His holy will. That's what Paul is saying here. But He is also our Father, that He relates to us personally, and intimately. We are His children. That He watches over us. And He works through us. And through His Holy Spirit, He dwells within us all. That God works through His children for their good to fulfill His divine plan. And so for us here at Redeemer... This verse means that we can rest assured that everything that happens, every situation that we encounter together as a church is under the sovereign care of our loving Heavenly Father. He is our God who loves us deeply. And so when this unity begins to creep in, We must remember that we are brothers and sisters and we have one Father who loves us. Because I love Him, I pursue unity with you. I repent. I reconcile. I go to you. I pursue unity because I love you, my brother and sister, and I love my Father. You see... We are called, well, we are one, and we're called to live as one. Because everything, everything that we are built upon is one. If we are willing to confess these seven core truths of the Christian faith, then we should be willing to engage with others practically with attitudes and actions that foster the unity of the church for which Christ died, whether that be with fellow brothers and sisters in Africa or those in the seats next to you. And so, desiring to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, we eagerly seek to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And in those times where it's not possible, where core truths have been rejected, either doctrinally or unrepentantly in immorality and unfaithful practice, in those times we may regrettably disassociate ourselves with them for the sake of purity and unity of God's truth and the good of His church. But we do so with that heart, desire, and attitude that we see in verses 1 through 3. Not demanding on my own way, but humbly yearning for the glory of Christ. That that has to be my motivation for why I do everything that I do and why I think about my relationship to whoever it might be. We are one. And we are called to live as one. Because everything that we are built upon is one. Friends, I know you have questions about that. I want to be able to answer them. So if you have questions, come and talk to me or someone else. But let's pursue this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this scriptural reminder of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. God, we know that we cannot build unity. We cannot create unity. And at times we try to do that of our own strength, and it lands us only in uniformity or trying to pursue unity at all costs. And we inadvertently neglect the truth and beauty of Christ, whether denying our Lord, our faith, our baptism, or something in between. And so, Lord, we we pray for a lot of wisdom in knowing how to think about applying this passage I pray that our goal above all things is to reflect the glory of Christ, that he might be seen as great and as glorious in our relationships with others. Lord, elevate our eyes away from ourselves, away from our local churches, to know and see that we are part of a larger body uh, that we can participate in mission with together through prayer, through relationships, through giving and going. But in all things, Lord, I pray that our unity would be consistent with the unity we see in the Trinity, the unity you have with your people, and the disunity you have with those that are not. Lord, give us wisdom in knowing how to do that. And with all things, with love and with humility and with gentleness, may we eagerly pursue the unity that comes from the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.